and welcome to From the EBPL Archives, Encore Presentations from the East Brunswick Public Library. I am your host, Melissa Hosick. This event was graciously funded by the East Brunswick Friends of the Library. To learn more about the Friends or make a donation, visit ebpl.org forward slash friends. Now, enjoy the program. Option Green, Climate Change and Community is presented by the East Brunswick Public Library and the Friends of the East Brunswick Environmental Commission. Funding is provided by the American Library Association's Resilient Communities, Libraries Respond to Climate Change, and the East Brunswick Friends of the Library. Thank you to all of the public libraries who are our community partners. For more information about Option Green, visit ebpl.org forward slash option green. Good evening, everyone. My name is Melissa Hosick, and I'm the Adult Programming Librarian at the East Brunswick Public Library. And welcome to our final live event in the Option Green Climate Change and Community Series. For closed captioning, please look for the link on YouTube and Facebook, and you'll be able to read the captioning there. This event is sponsored by the East Brunswick Public Library and the Friends of the East Brunswick Environmental Commission, and funded by the American Library Association's Resilient Communities, Libraries Respond to Climate Change pilot program. And thank you to all of our community partners. Um, Maritza Jeregi is an Associate Professor of Sustainability at Stockton University in Galloway, New Jersey. Growing up in an area of New Jersey where chromium blooms in recreational fields were common and where the dumping of construction debris and other unwanted materials was expected, she became extremely interested in why it was that some New Jersey towns always seemed to get the unwanted facilities while others seemed untouched. Dr. Jeregi's research focuses on the social, economic, and historical factors that produce environmental hazards in vulnerable communities and on sustainable solutions to preserve resilience. Thank you and welcome Dr. Drake. Thank you. Um, good evening, everybody. Um, I'm going to be talking about disparate environmental impacts, especially here in New Jersey. Um, some of you may know that uh, last year in September, Governor Murphy signed into law what was considered to be one of the strongest pieces of environmental justice regulation in the country. Um, Melissa, uh, Thank you. Should I'm sorry, everyone. I'm going to just ask a short, take a short break for a second. Um, what kind of signal should I give you for going next? Um, sorry. You can just say next. <laughs> okay. I just didn't want to keep saying. Some of them go pretty fast. So. Um, I'm sorry, we had a few technical difficulties, so um, Melissa is helping me try to get through the slides without any more technical glitches. Um, so in September of last year, Governor Murphy signed into law what some would consider to be, as I said, the strongest one of the strongest pieces of environmental justice legislation in the US. New Jersey actually became the first country in the nation to require mandatory permit denials if an analysis determined that a new polluting facility 
would have a disproportionately negative impact on what they termed overburdened communities. Next. So an overburdened community is, are, is one like the ones that you see on this map. They have the characteristics that you see here. So what would happen is that the, the New Jersey DEP would review the environmental justice impact statement that's required to be submitted along with other relevant information and then determine whether there was a disproportionate impact from environmental and public health stressors um, on these overburdened communities. So the DEP now can deny applications if they feel that that's the case. Next. These are some of the environmental stressors that they're looking for and some of the public health impacts that are considered. So is the community being affected by higher than normal rates of asthma or cancer or elevated blood lead levels? Um, what types of environmental hazards are they actually be, being uh, impacted by? Next. So why is this important? Have you ever wondered why some areas of New Jersey always look like this decade after decade? Next. And others always look like this? Next. It's also tied to questions like, why is it that some populations always end up living in the worst neighborhoods and others always end up in the nicer neighborhoods? The answer, you know, can seem pretty simple, like money, or in the case of manufacturing waste facilities, you could say it's location. But it's really rarely that straightforward. And there are a lot of different theories that are applied to explain why this happens. It really depends on who you ask. Next. So if you ask an economist, they'll tell you that it's because of money, of course, and the way that the economic markets operate. So they'll tell you that it could be the way that market forces work in terms of site selection. So basically a company has to reduce their costs when they're building a new facility. And most of the time, the only place they can do that is in the cost of the land. So land will be cheapest in areas that are already industrial, where property values are already depressed and where you have poor economic conditions in the population. This usually overlaps with areas where you have the greatest number of ethnic and racial minorities. The cost of the site will also be cheaper because this population is also least likely to have the resources to take them to court or to start any political opposition. The other reason they'll tell you is that after a facility is built, those who can afford to will leave and those who want the jobs associated with the facility will move in. Again, this is gonna leave an area with a population with a relatively low income and few alternative options. Next. If you ask a political scientist, they'll tell you, of course, that it's due to politics. So they, they'll say that it's either lack of political power or a problem with our environmental laws. So political power can work two ways. Either companies can choose to follow the path of least resistance, so choosing a site um, that's near populations that lack access to their elected officials who don't know who to contact or underrepresented at, in their local government or generally have a lack of know-how. 
or they say that it could be the environmental laws that we pass that are the problem. Maybe they just don't work to disincentivize those people who are polluting. It's just too cheap to pollute. Other political scientists would say that it's just the fact that we don't acknowledge that normal operations of almost every business generates some environmental harm. But because we see it as part of everyday business that we can't avoid, we tend to forget about it. So basically the law works so that only the very worst polluters get in trouble. This doesn't help low-income communities because the harm that they experience is cumulative. So everybody may be polluting a little bit, but they're all in the same place. And it's the effects of all of these sources of pollution together that affect the community. Next. Historians, on the other hand, will tell you that there are no true victims and there are no true perpetrators. There's no bad guy. That the same group of people can be both. That they can be victimized by decisions that were made by others, either on purpose or inadvertently, and that they themselves can be making decisions that'll affect the generation after them or other populations right now. And that all of this is usually the result of unintentional processes usually decision-making over time by multiple groups who are all fighting for scarce resources, and that sometimes impacted populations make things worse for themselves through their own decision-making. Usually not right away, but sometimes over time. Next. So urban planners will tell you that it's due to zoning issues and the restricted use of land. They'll tell you it's due to restricted social covenants or exclusionary zoning or expulsive zoning. So what does that mean? Next. Historically, some races, ethnicities, and religions were excluded from living in certain areas through the use of what's called restrictive covenants. These were clauses that were found in deeds to property that stated that individuals from certain backgrounds couldn't own or rent that property. This is an example of some of the clauses that were used. As you can see, they usually targeted new immigrants, um, certain religions, and cer certain races. Next. Exclusionary zoning practices were used to prevent home ownership in other ways through the use of certain types of zoning, such as large light lot zoning, which excludes anybody who can't afford a huge home on a huge plot of land, or excluding multifamily dwellings, so that there are no apartments, um, excluding trailer homes, and even anti-development properties policies, which actually seem to be a good thing at on the surface because they keep green space, but they can be used to keep low and mid-income populations out of a certain area. Next. A third way that they'll mention is usually expulsive zoning. And this is rezoning that results in residents ending up displaced. So it's usually related to urban renewal or gentrification. Um, so revitalization of an area. Here's an example from East Harlem. East Harlem is, is traditionally very low income. And um, currently, or at least over the past few years, they've been trying to gentrify Harlem, um, both West and East Harlem. 
And so residents are fighting this because a lot of the properties that they're in will be rezoned commercial, or they know that even if they aren't rezoned, that the, the prices for rents will go up so high that they'll end up displaced anyway. Next. Finally, sociologists would tell you that the reason that these things happen is because of overt and structural racism. Overt racism says that individuals in some organizations target people of color on purpose because they believe that either their lives are worth less than those of white individuals um, or because they have some perverse need to target others that aren't like them. Structural racism is a little more subtle though. It includes policies and practices that are put in place by institutions that have discriminatory effects, whether they're intended or unintended. So for example, um, the fact that individuals on zoning boards are usually not residents from low-income parts of town and neither are their families or friends. Uh, another example is differences in public school budgets in the US and the quality of the teachers, because those are usually correlated with property values. So upper income neighborhoods are more likely to uh, have better teachers and more money for education, even though public schools are supposed to be providing the same public education to everybody. Next, overt and structural racism have been found to have an effect on health in addition to having lower socioeconomic resources. So it's not just the money that's involved. It's the fact that this racism is an added burden. It's the fact that you have to deal with these stressors every single day that also contribute to poor health. So it has an independent effect that's different than just not having the resources, not having access to insurance, not having access to knowledge or um, the best health care. Next. An example of institutional racism, which is a type of structural racism, is redlining. So here's a map of Camden. And um, this was back when Camden was redlined. It started, redlining started with the federal government's homeowners loan corporation uh, between 1935 and 1940. What they did is they assigned grades to residential neighborhoods and cities all over the country that reflected what they called mortgage security. And then these grades would be visualized on color-coded maps, like what you see here. Um, so you have a map that has green, yellow, red on it. Um, so neighborhoods that received the highest grade of A were colored green on the maps. And these were deemed minimal risk for banks and other mortgage lenders when they were determining who should receive loans and which areas of the city were safe investments. Those that received the lowest grade, which was D, were colored in red and they were considered hazardous. Anybody trying to get a mortgage in what, an area that was redlined or uh, receiving that grade of D was pretty much assured that they wouldn't be able to get a loan and thus they wouldn't be able to buy a house. This homeowners loan corporation created area descriptions to help to organize the data that they used to assign the grades. And um, 
when they did this, they also revealed what they were using in terms of deciding how to grade a residential area. So um, they took into account the neighborhood's quality of housing, the recent history of sale and rent values, and the racial and ethnic identity and class of residents. So they would have things like white of a lower class or Asian of a higher class or, or whatever it may be um, as, one of, as the, one of the ways in which they determine the grade. Next. Um, so it turns out that um, some have tried looking at lending practices now. And what they found is that the percentage of those receiving loans in New Jersey um, still is differentiated by race or, and by ethnicity. So you could see the number of applications um, and the percent that were denied in each case. So um, you have, if you look at those percentages across the board in certain counties, especially in South Jersey, what you'll see is that certain races or ethnicities are more likely to be denied for loans. And this is in the 2000s, this is not back in the 1930s. So are they still using those same grades? The answer is no. So what happens is that a house is a type of wealth. It's a form of asset that can be sold or passed down. And it has a, an effect on who actually gets a loan in the future, right? If you, did, if you have a house that you inherited from your family, you can sell that house or you could rent it or you can use it as collateral to get another loan. So banks are more likely to lend to you if you have these types of assets. If you don't, you're more likely to be denied. So those initial decisions that made them deny loans to people a couple of generations ago are still affecting people now. And they still have essentially the same effect. So next, lack of wealth in the form of assets has a profound effect on financial status in these communities, which in turn, as you can see here, has an effect on a person's health throughout their entire lifetime and on the health of their kids. Um, so you can see at the beginning that your parents' resources will affect your health directly, such as if your mom gets prenatal care, if um, she's able to access the resources she needs to have a healthy child. But it also affects things like what school district you end up in. It affects how far you get into your education and what type of job you get. What job you get determines what type of insurance you end up with if you have insurance. It also ends up determining whether you have days off at work, um, if you get vacation days, if you get sick days, right? The worse your health is from the beginning, the worse it'll get over time because 
If you have ill health as a child, it's going to be hard to get through school. If it's hard to get through school, you're less likely to, to get a decent job later on. If you're, if you're less likely to get a decent job, your health is going to suffer. And if you're in ill health, no one's going to keep you in the job because you're not going to be in long enough for them to want to keep you. And then all of this affects what happens to you in your retirement and if you can retire and what your health is like at the end of life. And this happens generation after generation. Next. So why do we need to find long-term solutions? They seem like really complicated issues, right? Everything seems to lead to something else and it all seems to have historical um, reasons. We can't go back in time and change what happened. But there are reasons for trying to find long-term solutions. Next. The main reason is that because where you live matters, not only to your quality of life, but to your health. And it's not just about the money that, that you have or don't have or your accumulated, your accumulated wealth. If you look on the left-hand side, you'll see different neighborhood features that can affect your health in different ways. So pollution, biological and chemical hazards in the environment and your air or your water or your soil can end up causing respiratory diseases. If you have a lot of noise in your neighborhood, it could cause hearing loss or sleep deprivation, which can then lead to other issues. Um, it could lead to developmental delays. What type of housing you live in um, also can contribute to the development of things like asthma. What type of transportation you take or have access to. Um, what you see on billboards will affect your lifestyle, right? If you have to wait two hours to get on a bus to transfer to another bus to get to work, you're not going to be going jogging later on in the day. You're going to be exhausted. You're going to try to get sleep if you can get sleep. And lack of sleep, um, a sedentary lifestyle, billboards that encourage unhealthy practices like alcohol, uh, like a lot of drinking or smoking or, or whatever it may be, will also affect your health in the long run. Not having parks nearby, not having safe parks nearby, that affects how healthy you are in the long run and how healthy your children are. Lack of libraries. Libraries are an incredible resource, as you all know. And not having a library is part of an environmental harm. It's an environmental deficit. When we're talking about distribution of harm, we're talking about groups of people that not only get all the pollution, but they don't get the good things that we tend to take for granted in society. The public goods, the libraries, the parks, access to transportation, clean air, and all of these things will affect their health. If you live in an environment that's affected by all of these things, you're also going to have a lack of support in the neighborhood because you're going to have a lot of people moving in and out. A lot of people that are probably going to be renting and don't have much invested in the neighborhood. 
um, you're going to have a higher level of stress in the neighborhood. Um, you're going to have possibly violence or crime, uh, low levels of trust because you don't really know anybody. They're always moving in and out. The crime rates are going up. So you're not sure what to do. And that leads to anxiety and fear, which leads to hypervigilance, which leads to hypertension. It could also lead to um, psychological distress. So overeating and smoking and addictive behaviors that are associated with those as well. Or mental health um, illnesses such as depression. Next. And all of these health conditions together determine how long you're going to live. So here's a map that is looking at the Trenton area. And as you can see here, there are quite a few differences in, in um, length of, on how long people are going to, to be living. So um, longevity is, differs from place to place, but these are averages, right? They're averages for, for different towns in the area. As you can see, there's 87 and there's a 73. Next. But these differences get even greater if you look at the individual neighborhoods and not just the averages for cities. So for example, the average life expectancy of somebody living near the center of Trenton is only 68 years. While the life expectancy for somebody who lives near the center of Princeton is 90 years. Next. Okay, so to put that in perspective, that's the difference in life expectancy between the current number one country for life expectancy in the world, which is Monaco right now, and the 187th country in the world in terms of life expectancy, which is Burundi. The average life expectancy um, is that great, but we're only talking about a distance of only 10 miles. Right? We're not talking about two different countries. We're talking about a 10-mile difference in the state of New Jersey. This would be like comparing the average life expectancy of the U.S. to that of Chad or South Sudan. And this isn't just true in Mercer County. Here in Middlesex County, we see the same exact thing. Somebody living in South Brunswick can expect to live to 88.4 years of age, whereas somebody living in Woodbridge can expect to live to only 74.9. That's a difference of a little over 13 and a half years and only 18 miles. But it's also the difference in life expectancy between the US and Bangladesh. So next, there are lots of reasons why this occurs but most of them are due to what we've talked about, those accumulations of environmental harms, the lack of amenities, and the health effects that, that they create. The other thing is that it also makes communities vulnerable to disasters, whether these disasters are natural or man-made. So hurricanes or new disease like COVID are just environmental hazards. In and of themselves, they're neither good nor bad. 
It's only when they come in contact with vulnerable communities that they become disasters. Next. So um, the CDC actually uses something called a social vulnerability index, which actually looks at the vulnerability of different communities around the country. So if you look at that same exact neighborhood in Trenton um, using the social vulnerability index, their vulnerability score is 0.9935, so 0.9935. The scores only range from zero to one, with one being the highest vulnerability. A score of 0.99 is one of the highest levels of vulnerability you can have. Next. So here's the vulnerability index for that same uh, neighborhood that we talked about in Princeton. It's 0.2511. And as I said, zero is the lowest vulnerability, one is the highest. So a 0.25 means that this particular community, besides having environmental amenities, besides um, having a longer length of life, is also has a lower to moderate level of vulnerability to succumbing to disasters. Next. So what can we do? Next. I'm so sorry, Melissa. <laughs> I'm sorry you have to do this. There's so many slides. So um, next. Okay. So one of the first things that we can do is try to educate ourselves and become aware. On the slide are a list of all of the different databases that are out there that can give us information about what's happening in our neighborhoods in terms of what's happening to the, the built environment, what's happening in terms of the social services that are out there, what's happening in terms of the health of the population. Um, they're all great resources and they all offer all different types of um, information that can be used to inform yourselves. And that's really the first step. The first thing you have to do is to know what's going on around you. Without that, you can't take any other steps. Next, New Jersey also has databases that can be used. Um, you can look up issues in particular cities. You can actually uh, look up uh, particular health is issues or environmental issues. Um, there are also reports that are published for communities. So uh, for example, next. Uh, this map, what came out of one of those reports, next. The EPA also has um, mapping uh, capability for anyone. They basically have videos that'll show you how, how to map all the hazards in your neighborhood. So everything from toxic releases to air quality to how your neighborhood ranks in terms of cancer. So one of the tools that's, that's popular is EJ Screen. So this is exactly that same neighborhood again but this is with all of those hazards mapped, that area of Trenton. Next. 
um, if you notice, you as you map, the same exact area has all of the color in it. Next. Okay. So you can use this to map any part of New Jersey. Um, I actually mapped several different areas, but as you can see, most of the time, all the hazards tend to cluster in one area or in two different areas on the map. Next. Okay. One of the other things that you can do is to help to gather more information. So here's an example um, of crowdsourced data. <laughs> so uh, this is smellmycity.org. <laughs> it's just an example. But this one actually uses smells to help to, to make people aware of the fact that the air, there's a change in air quality. So the data is actually crowdsourced using an app and then mapped online uh, into a website where everybody can access it. Next. Um, another example is getting involved in citizen science. So you don't have to be a scientist to be involved in scientific studies. In fact, some of the most successful initiatives in terms of environmental justice have used citizen science. So this is an example of the Ironbound District in Newark. Um, so in this case, they used sensor technologies and different tools to examine uh, data that was collected against the backdrop of community maps that were created by the community members themselves. So the members of the community were taught how to use the tools, how to use the sensors, and how to create the maps. They didn't need to go back to school to do this. Everything was done in conjunction with the EPA and with local universities. Next. Another example is community asset mapping. So, um, it's a way of trying to assess vulnerability and resilience in communities. So you enlist members in mapping communities and usually they map things like uh, environmental and health threats, social and economic vulnerabilities, demographics, uh, disparities between communities. Uh, all of these are then used to as indicators to figure out what's going on in the communities. So uh, the link on the bottom there is uh, about how community asset mapping was used at the beginning of COVID. Next, you could even contribute to databases that are global. So here's an example called EJ Atlas. EJ Atlas asks people around the world to talk about what's going on in their communities, to talk about how they are challenged by the environment and what they're doing about it. So not only do you document what's going on in your own community, but you get ideas about what's going on in others and what works and what doesn't work. So this is a way for community groups around the world to share strategies in terms of fighting environmental injustice. Next. Another thing you could do is to use the laws. Okay, so um, there are, of course, legal options in many countries that can be used to fight environmental injustice. This link here um, is an example of using U.S. statutes to fight environmental injustice here in the United States. So it's a link to a document um, that has a table at the end that shows how each 
federal environmental law can be used as a tool to fight environmental injustice, what it allows you to do, how to use it successfully. Next. You can also help to create new laws or change old ones. Okay, so you can get involved in the legislative process. Um, you can get involved in introducing legislation. So you can contact your Congress member and ask them to introduce a bill or ask them to co-sponsor a bill. You can ask them to offer amendments to a bill or ask them to vote a certain way when the bill is in committee. All of your representatives are sit on specialized committees and many of them overlap with environmental issues. They also overlap with some of those other issues that we talked about previously that help to cause these environmental problems. Another thing that you can do is ask your member of Congress to make a public statement uh, about a, a bill um, in a speech to raise awareness. Um, or you can ask them simply to vote a certain way on a bill. Next. Okay, so besides increasing um, or changing these laws by talking to someone in Congress, there are other possible solutions that have worked successfully in the past in terms of policy change. Uh, most of these policies try to address specific types of underlying causes of injustice. So ban, banning certain types of substances, introducing environmental justice policies and programs that are specifically aimed at environmental justice issues requiring review processes before you have permitting, like the new legislation. Uh, planning proactively, trying to plan in a way that will discourage environmental injustice or prevent environmental injustice in the, in the future. Uh, targeting existing land uses, so rezoning in a positive way. And another strategy is changing public health codes. Public health and the environment are, are linked together. They have reciprocal if, effects on each other. So um, if you change one, you're gonna end up changing the other. So there are different organizations um, for example, the Tishman Environment and Design Center in New York um, that conduct studies to figure out what types of current policies have been implemented in the US to address environmental justice and which ones have been successful. Um, most of them will fall into these categories that I just talked about. Okay, um, so in case you're curious, I did include the link there um, for uh, what the policies are. Um, each of the policies are in a summary document and then there's a table that summarizes in one sentence what each initiative is about and then you could decide whether you want to click on those to learn more about them and to figure out if they would work in your own neighborhood. Join a group. Okay, so um, you could join a board. Remember how I said that 
members of planning boards um, are usually not from neighborhoods that are being impacted. Well, members of other boards usually aren't either. You can serve on a local level board or commission that makes decisions on area issues. Boards at the local level always need citizen involvement in order to work effectively. So you can find out what's available, visit your local government website, um, these will list all the boards and commissions, their existing vacancies. You can attend a meeting of a board that you're interested in joining, and you can apply. Um, one way of making sure that you get on the board is actually to reach out to people who are currently on it, get to know them. To, you can regularly attend meetings so they get to know you. And make sure that you introduce yourself, um, especially to the officials um, in charge of appointing board members. Next. Another thing that you can do is actually join an interest group, a group that is working together towards fixing some environmental issue in your community. Okay. Um, next. So um, when you're a group member, you find other people that are interested in the same issues as you. Uh, so you can help to organize events together. You can advocate for, for uh, certain changes. And there are strength in numbers, right? So if you join a special interest group, th those groups usually join with other groups to form coalitions. In fact, it took a coalition of 252 organizations here in New Jersey, um, environmental organizations, um, social justice organizations, um, organizations that dealt with specific issues around New Jersey, to all band together to get that legislation passed that was passed in September, 252. So every single person counts. Every single group counts. So you can research different groups, you can attend their events, try to figure out which ones you're really interested in and which ones are actually doing things that you feel that you want to accomplish. Make sure that you stay informed about the group's plans try to join coordinated activities that the group is planning, try to participate even if it's online. I know right now everything's online. I'm online. <laughs> so um, you, these types of groups actually accomplish a lot more than individuals usually. Uh, next. Another thing that you can do is to change the way you think. I know that sounds odd, but a lot of times when we grow up, we're, we're used to thinking about things in categories. It's called reductionistic thinking. We're used to thinking about things one at a time. Um, and we don't stop to think about the relationships between those things that we look at individually. Systems thinking is about learning to focus on those relationships, learning to understand how one issue affects another issue. And learning how to come up with solutions to problems that are related to each other. So when we come up with solutions that can solve multiple problems at once, we call this multi-solving. Next.
they're tools actually for systems thinking. Uh, an example is this iceberg model where you see what's happening on the surface, such as a particular community has all of these hazardous waste facilities, um, has all the pollution, doesn't have any of the amenities that other communities have. And underneath, you see that certain trends occur, like the trends that we talked about in those other slides, those causes. If you dig down deeper, you'll find that a lot of those causes are actually related to each other. I mean, uh, an economist will stress one cause and a political scientist will stress another one. But when you get down to it, all of those issues are related and they interact with each other. If you dig down even deeper than that, you'll realize that there's usually some way of thinking, some sort of assumptions that are usually made by people that occur over and over and over again that allow these relationships to continue, that allow these causes to persist, that create that community at the very top that's overburdened with environmental hazards and overburdened with health problems. Next. And finally, you can encourage sustainability. The type of sustainability that we need to encourage is not just environmental sustainability, but community sustainability. We need to put programs in place or you can help to encourage programs that are put in place in your community that encourage community capacity and community cohesion and community resilience. So community capacity has to do with the skills and the abilities of the people in that community. It's not just about the number of people you have in the community, it's about what they know and what they can do. And whether there are institutions in place to teach them what they need you know, are there local libraries running programs that will help to educate them? Um, are there schools helping? Community cohesion has to do with how well everybody gets along in the community. If you don't know anyone in your community, you're not necessarily going to get along with them. So something that encourages building of social networks, building bridges across communities. And then last, community resilience. If you have community capacity and you have community cohesion, you're going to build community resilience, which helps communities overcome issues such as having uh, environmental hazards in their neighborhood or environmental hazards that just occur like hurricanes or, or um, diseases like COVID. Um, on the last slide, uh, I also put a link to some proven strategies. So these are strategies that have been used in communities to improve health across the country. These are ones that um, have shown over time to actually increase um, resilience, increase health, and decrease these hazards. So that's pretty much the end of my presentation. Um, if you have any questions, please feel free to ask them. So, does anyone have any questions? Please type them into the chat. 
So people said there are a lot of awesome links. And I said, if you need them directly, they're going to email me and I will send them to them because you had some great resources. And a lot of what people say, it's like, there's this big, gigantic issue. What can I actually do? And providing those, uh, especially like I think the citizen science uh, stuff that people don't necessarily know about. And, you know, using that is a really great resource that we try to share with people as well. And almost every town has an environmental commission or a green committee or some sort of sub-organization. Right now, you'd probably be asking to join a virtual meeting, as they say, but they do listen. Oh, we have a question. Right. Oh, a question uh, from Felicia. I live in Princeton. Do I need to go to a public library to access links? No, we can totally, you can just totally email me and I can send you the links to all these slides. Everyone is welcome. That You can email programs at ebpl.org, Felicia. I can totally get to you. Also, Princeton Public Library has some really amazing environmental things, and they're part of this process, too. So definitely check them out. Does anyone have any questions? Let's see. Um, they really like the idea of the multi-solving systems thinking, which is a good way to start thinking about things in a different way. Right now, you know, there's been a lot of movement in New Jersey, and you know, the federal government is going through a lot of transitions right now. For people to really feel like they're like dipping their toe in and wanting to write to their politicians, should they be looking more at their state right now to see, you know, what their, their stances of their legislatures are? Or should they just, you know, reach out to all of them at once? Is there a good place for them, do you think, to start with that advocacy? Usually starting at the local level works best. Um, it's you usually can start at any level and I encourage uh, individuals to start at the level that they feel most comfortable with. But in terms of seeing immediate effects, you usually get more done on a local level, state level, than trying to reach out on a federal level. And that's simply because of the size of the organizations and how long it takes for things to get done. Uh, the smaller the geographic area, the smaller the jurisdiction, the easier it is for things to happen. So let's see. I'm seeing if anyone else said anything. Please type your questions in the chat. That's what we're here for. We're here to have a dialogue. You have a very knowledgeable person. And considering that there is so much going on, it's good to have these. Um, I didn't see here. Um, answers about copies of links. Irene, I'm going to put an email address in the chat. Please email programs at edpl.org. And if anybody's and if anybody's interested in learning more about multi-solving, I can actually, uh, Melissa, I can send you more links. Um, there's actually training, um, free training online that you can uh, access on learning how to multi-solve and how to apply that, so. So I may load some of these links up on our site as well if we get a lot of demand. So upon, okay, here's an interesting question from Felicia. Upon average, how long would it take to actually get action from saying what you're, you know, where you feel, you know, where does it have to be in the process? What, what, I kind of have an idea this is a case of it depends, but. It, it does depend, but, um, I have to tell you that it took a long time to create these problems that we have now, um, and it will take a long time to solve them. But it really depends on, on what type of action you're looking for. Like, what, what specifically do you want to see change? Um, it, if you are just looking 
for small changes, they can happen fairly quickly. But if you want to see huge changes in a neighborhood or a town or a region, it's going to take a long time. Um, it can take years. If you look at the, the Ironbound um, district in Newark, they've been working on this for 30 years. <laughs> um, and it's still an ongoing process. Uh, there are environmental justice organizations all over New Jersey that have been working on these issues for, for decades. And um, I will include the links to those as well. So if you want to get involved with those, find out what they're doing, find out what they're doing in your local area. It, it would definitely be a good idea. Um, so even though you individually, it might take you a long time to get things accomplished, there are lots of others that have been working on these for a while. So you may come in and see effects relatively quickly just because all of the groundwork has been laid there. Okay, let's see. Um, I suppose it would be a development in progress because we may not know the best possible way to solve problems. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a way. Yeah, that's true. So let me see if people are really wanting these links. So um, I may just take, may I share your PDF if I share it and upload it to your site, to our website? Are you okay with that? That, um, that is fine, actually. Okay. That, yeah. So what I'll do fine. is um, I will be linking it on our website because um, I can't necessarily email everyone. So I'll be linking it there and any other resources she provides, it will be on the calendar event listing. So I'll do that once we're done. Does anyone have any other questions? Because this was a lot of information, but it was really yeah. great. I love links and resources and libraries are really trying to be parts of communities and, you know, help in terms of climate, um, you know, being hubs when like when there was a tropical storm last year, providing people to charge their phones. We have consumer health librarians. So hearing that they're actually, you know, the impacts and if we can do whatever we can to help our communities in that way, too, sounds great. Uh, oh, this is always an interesting question. How do we hold accountable the companies who don't have sustainable practices? Actually, there are different ways of holding them accountable. Um, you can hold them accountable by putting by changing the laws. I mean, that's an obvious one. But there are more subtle ways to hold them accountable. So, the whether you buy their products or not, um, whether you invest in them or not, right? If you Investors now are actually asking companies to be more transparent and to um, try to tie the, the compensation that CEOs get to sustainable practices. In fact, um, I just recently read an article that some of the Fortune 100 companies have recently switched over to that where a certain percentage of the CEO pay is now going to, from this point onwards, going to be linked to their sustainability practices and how much gets accomplished in terms of sustainability through those companies. Okay, does anyone have any other questions? I'm going to get it up on the website. I'm working on getting it uploaded. I can't do everything at the same time. And also I had the presentation open, so it took a little bit. Well, I think we've hit the end of the program. I want to thank our community partners by name. They were in my little video in the beginning, but thank you so much. Well, obviously to the friends of the East Brunswick Environmental Commission who are our main partners. We've been doing environmental and sustainability lectures since 2017 together. It's been a really awesome thing. So definitely check out friends ebec.com.
But thank you to the Highland Park Public Library, Madawan Aberdeen Public Library, New Brunswick Public Library, North Brunswick Public Library, Old Bridge Public Library, Plainsboro Public Library, and the South Brunswick Public Library. And thank you, Professor Jureji. I really appreciate you taking your time and sharing your knowledge. And hopefully people will be inspired to join an organization, go to a meeting, send an email to their legislator and see if we can actually make change. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And I'm sorry about the glitches at the beginning. We are in the time of technology and things still being in flux. So thank you, everyone. Good night and stay safe. Bye. Thank you for joining us for this week's Encore presentation. To join us for live programs or to learn more about the East Brunswick Public Library, visit our website at ebpl.org.